A home is more than just a place to live. My great-grandfather purchased a home. This house is a link to Jalen Stevens' past, but he's fighting for its future, struggling to pay the property taxes. I've been risking foreclosure for the last six years. He says his home in East Detroit was overassessed by the city. One study shows nationwide the property tax rate for the least expensive homes is more than double that of the most expensive homes in the same jurisdiction. And those in predominantly black neighborhoods are assessed at a rate 50% higher than white neighborhoods in the same area. This is a story of structural injustice. Bernadette Atuahene studies property tax inequity in Detroit. Since 2009, one in three homes has been confiscated because of property tax foreclosure. We haven't seen this number in American history since the Great Depression. The city of Detroit admits property tax inequity was an issue, but says that's no longer the case. There is no systemic or systematic overassessment of properties in Detroit. Detroit's lead assessor, Alvin Horn, says that's because of changes that began seven years ago. We have better processes, we have more resources, we have oversight from county and state to make sure that what happened before, that the mistakes of the past never happened again. We asked for data to support the city's assertion that property tax inequity has improved since making those changes, but so far the city has not provided that information. Atuahene says that's because the problem still exists. Just last year, she helped 68 homeowners, including Edith Ford, file appeals. This property tax is sky high. Edith won hers, and her property taxes are now 15% lower. I can afford to fix things at my house. I'm saving money where I can pay my own bills. In fact, all 68 appeals that Tuahene worked on had their assessed values reduced. If there isn't a problem, as the city is suggesting, how do you explain that 68 of those homeowners ended up with lower assessed values? I would say that the process worked. That's why we have an appeals process. Chris Berry analyzes property values across the country. It's not just a problem in blue states or red states. It's in cities and suburbs and rural areas. One issue, assessors only evaluate the exterior. They don't go inside, so they can't factor in upgrades, upkeep, or deterioration. There's lots of features of homes that buyers and sellers get to see, but that assessors don't. So if you file for an appeal, bring pictures of the inside, include images of what's bringing the value down, and provide prices of comparable properties that recently sold in the area. As for Jalen, his appeal was denied, but when NBC News started asking questions, the city acknowledged it made a mistake and now says it's making adjustments, though Jalen is still waiting for official word. He says filing the appeal wasn't easy, but not filing could have been a costly mistake. Megan Fitzgerald, NBC News, Detroit. When it comes to people's safety, Joe Lewis, 
Renisha McBride. Whenever I think of Joe Lewis now, especially I hear Neely Fuller Jr., where I hear Dr. Maya Angelou as well. Lots of folks, because Joe Lewis has come up so many times, but I hear Neely Fuller Jr. Uh, he says, uh, Joe Lewis, tax cheat, illiterate prize fighter, victim of white supremacy keep things in proper perspective uh, gusty renegade context of white supremacy uh, in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date tuesday may 17 2022 so i have been told i uh, have to or i think it would be constructive at least to say at the outset this program was planned before the tragedy in Buffalo, New York, uh, this past weekend. Um, certainly that probably would have shifted things around and why are they talking about Detroit and what have you? Although I will say racism, white supremacy. I mean, all things are related now, Detroit and Buffalo, you know, not quite the same thing. However, as I'm reading through the book that we were scheduled to talk about way before I ever knew the name Peyton Gendron Jr. The flyer in the book we are to discuss this evening. It's with the promotional material, social media and what have you. But the flyer says, help the white people to keep this district white men needed in all capital letters to keep our lines solid come to Nevada and Finland these are areas of uh, Detroit Michigan Sunday and Monday we need help don't be yellow come out we need every white man very relevant, I thought, to, you know, what had Peyton Jenrin Jr. But the thing is, I didn't read all the way. I fuss about that all the time. People not paying attention, not reading it, ran, 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 all the rest of it. Gus T. Renegade with everything that we've talked about, even Dylan Roof, right? They keep bringing him up, right? And they should. Dylan Stormroof and all that 2015. Dylan Stormroof, when he went in that church, he said, you keep raping our women. I didn't read the entire flyer because you had to get all the way down to the bottom, almost in fine print where it says we want our girls to walk on the street, not raped. Oh, I, man, you got to read all the way sometimes to get all of the information. Very relevant, I thought. In addition, you know, there's violence and all the rest of it, but just that flyer alone. Men, white men, excuse me, white men needed. What does that mean? We will chat about Buffalo as well as what happened in Detroit in 1942, I guess, for today's broadcast. And even two components are interesting because our guest for today's broadcast, his Research interests include American literature, culture, local history, as well as digital technology applications in higher education. 
How interesting. Even some of that's been discussed a little bit with what happened uh, in Buffalo. Uh, The book, I Made a Total Error, the book that we were supposed to discuss. (sighs) I messed up. So the book that we ended up getting was Detroit's Sojourner Truth Housing Riot of 1942, Prelude to the Race Riot of 1943 great information maybe it was that I was supposed to get that book maybe they didn't have that cool flyer in the other book but the book that I thought I grabbed was Detroit's Birdwood Wall Hatred and Healing in the West 8 Mile Community that was the book that I thought we were going to read I think that was even what I said in the invitation and slow Gus it took me I had to start reading and be like wait a minute this is not Oh, man, he wrote more than one book and I got the wrong one. So we are kind of adjusting on the fly in many ways. But joining us live, he wrote both of the books, Scholar on Detroit and Michigan History. Joining us live, Professor Gerald Van Dusen. Uh, Professor Van Dusen, you with us, sir? Hey, Gus. Nice to talk to you tonight. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Make sure I don't mess myself up. Unmuted. Bang. Sorry for that. Listeners might have missed out on a few seconds. Just did our quick intro with Professor Gerald Van Dusen joining us live from Michigan. Again, important. I said that, hey, this was scheduled before everything happened in Buffalo. Didn't know Peyton Jenrin Jr. existed. And then I also did my obligatory shout out. We're talking about Detroit, Michigan. The great Joe Lewis, the late Renisha McBride. I guess I said uh, the late and great. Joe Lewis as well. Uh, Anyway, uh, now we got that in. Listeners can hear us. We're all great. Uh, For folks, this may be their first time hearing about you and your scholarship. Uh, Anything briefly you would like to tell our listeners before we get started, Professor Van Dusen? Yeah, let's um, kind of tie everything together um, with what happened um, in Buffalo and tie it all back to uh, my research into the early 1940s, so we're talking 80 years ago. So everything's changed and nothing has changed. Um, One of the um, great ironies of the American involvement in World War II, which was kind of my focus in both books, um, was that while our politicians and even our citizenry um, were uh, railing against or disparaging the German Nazi theory of Aryan superiority, we were in fact engaging in white supremacy at home and in the military. I mean, that was, that just jumps out when you consider um, what was happening, for instance, in the military. Um, I mean, the Red Cross barred black blood donors as early as December of 1941, the same month the war started. And we um, ended later, only reluctantly, but still segregated um, African-American blood donations. Um, U.S. Navy blacks were typically given the most menial jobs on board. On board. Uh, the Marine Corps would not even accept um, African-Americans. You know, uh, the list goes, goes on and on. Um, so my research really focused on, with the theme of um, this white supremacy that overrode all concerns, at the time, but it, it's kind of slapped in the face. I don't see how anyone could have missed it, but uh, no one really discussed it. Um, so I was um, a high school student 
And this was back in the early 1960s. I was preparing for my mid-semester exams, um, local high school, uh, Northwest Detroit. And a friend of mine who was having some problems with Latin, this was a private Catholic school, Northwest Detroit, and I was having problems with math. He was good in math. I was good in Latin. So we decided to study together. And when we finished, he wanted to show me around his neighborhood. And uh, we walked a few blocks from a street called Pinehurst to uh, Mendota, uh, which bordered on Burwood. And we came across this wall, six foot tall, starting at eight mile, foot thick, six foot high. And it just seemed to go on interminably going south. I didn't know how long it went. He said it was the, uh, if you were new to the neighborhood, uh, you were to uh, uh, challenge uh, the person to climb the wall and walk as far as you could. It's kind of an initiation. So I got up, climbed the top of the wall and started walking. The problem was the wall was at this point, 20 years old. It was built in 41. And so I proceeded south on the wall. He was behind me, just expecting me to fall. And trees were, tree branches uh, grew over the wall and some shrubs, outbuildings, everything, all kinds of problems trying to navigate this wall after 20 years. So I did, in fact, trip over a vine, I think it was, into the grass below in the backyard. And I look up at him and said, this is really ridiculous. Why would they have built a wall between just two neighborhoods? Why wouldn't they put up like a chain link fence? And he looked down at me and said it was to keep people like you away from people like me. Well, that was my introduction to race relations and segregation and um, white supremacy all in a day for a 15-year-old. Um, so I decided um, it, I could, the idea kind of incubated over many years. Uh, and it wasn't really until the Internet came and um, I was able to easily research and see what I could find out uh, because there were just no second resources about the wall. Uh, and there was really wasn't a whole lot about Detroit um, segregation at the time. So when the internet came, I was able to, you know, plug in a whole lot of terms, segregation, uh, Burwood wall, I mean, wall, segregation wall, things like that. And I'd find an occasional article, um, but not much. And it certainly never, um, never could find anything about the people that were walled in. Who were these people and how big a community um, were they talking about that it was necessary to wall them in? And so I um, continued just looking around. Now, I was an English major, um, and so I had no history background. I took the usual you know, world history course and maybe one other course in college, so I had no training in history. So I had no, I certainly didn't consider writing about it as an historian. Um, I was pretty much devoted to uh, teaching um, how, um, for other teachers, how you teach online. So I got into uh, higher education technology and the like. But eventually, uh, the Library of Congress starts to post some photographs taken during, before and during the war. A guy by the name of John Vachon, for instance, uh, from the Midwest started taking photographs. And unbeknownst to me at the time, he was in Detroit at the time. The wall was just finished being constructed. Um, and he took a photograph, three photographs. One is absolutely iconic and is on the cover of my 
Burwood Wall book, it's uh, four little kids standing uh, um, with the wall in the background. And it kind of inflamed my imagination. And I'm thinking, my God, these kids are exposed to this poisonous concept of uh, separation of races, uh, segregation of um, white supremacy, and and not really understanding it. And who wants to explain it to them? So these little kids aging, I would guess, four or five, maybe as old, the one uh, boy, maybe um, eight or nine, they're smiling, looking into the John Vachon's camera, you know, having no um, understanding of what they're standing in front of. And I'm thinking, who are these kids? Um, the picture was taken in August of 1941. And I just wanted to find out what happened to them. Um, it was conceivable that they were still alive. Uh, what happened to their lives? Um, what what did they think? Um, how did you they reflect? You happen right here, uh, uh, oh, Professor sure. Van Dusen. Uh, and if you can try and condense your answer so we can cover as much as possible, we always appreciate the the detail. But we'll have uh, hopefully we have some questions from listeners. And even before we get into some of the details of of your book, I do want to get in a quick word, uh, thought or two from you f- about the situation in Buffalo. Uh, just before we get to all of that in terms of connecting everything. In fact, even with Burwood wall in Detroit that we'll get into more detail about, think of uh, a world more concrete. NDB Connolly, he was a guest on our program. We talked about this very uh, subject matter where sometimes you don't even think about the things that are around you. They just seem ordained by God because it's, you know, structure, meaning not structures in a metaphorical sense, but walls or edifices where buildings are how they are located these structures seem uh, permanent it's always been this way how could it be anything different uh, but you mentioned a number of different terms uh, race or before we even get to that number one uh, for folks who've not seen you you are a white man is that correct Mr. Van Dusen that's correct okay uh, this program uh, I've concluded the different concepts segregation separation prejudice, discrimination. Uh, I've concluded what we're talking about, racism, white supremacy. I use those two terms as synonyms, and I use the same definition for both terms. That definition, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? The definition uh, works is only, uh, only because uh, there is copious evidence to support it. Um, I mean, it's hard. It would be very difficult to argue against it in light of, um, certainly in light of the 80 years that I've researched, the period of time that I've researched. I mean, uh, uh, it's difficult to uh, conclude otherwise. Hmm. Okay. Uh, If I may ask, uh, how old are you, Professor Van Dusen? I am 75. 75. Wow, okay. Good bit of time to do some research about what's happening on the planet. Appreciate that. Um, For... I guess before we even get into the 
any of the details, and this is when I generally ask our white guests on the program, uh, do you think it is a lot, especially given your years of research you just shared, more than a half century of research on this subject matter, do you think it is logical for any individual classified as not white to be suspicious of any person who is classified as white, even yourself? Oh, I don't, um, that was pretty painfully obvious to me when I decided to uh, explore this area because uh, I had to use primary sources. That is, I had to talk to people that remembered what happened. And so in most of the people, well, uh, I think pretty much everybody was black. And I walked the streets of the area and it was predominantly black. And there was, I was met with a great deal of uh, suspicion. And I think it was, I had to, uh, you know, I think over a period of time, uh, persuade, convince people that um, I was going to give this um, an honest effort. I was going to be true to the facts and I would uh, let the facts steer me in the proper direction. So, yeah, I can understand uh, the level of suspicion that you described. Hmm. With... uh the situation on Buffalo, I thought that was so important. Uh, one, even just connecting, hopefully, uh, these type of events, I would think we wouldn't need too many more reminders. We did have, I mentioned Dylan Storm Roof and many other instances uh, of white violence, uh, public mass white violence. Uh, but people will take these subjects very serious uh, and say, hey, people die all the time around these issues, uh, whether they're having their houses taken and uh, suffering that sort of insecurity or just going out to grocery shop or worship or whatever else. White supremacy, racism is serious business worldwide. But with the uh, situation in Buffalo, uh, President Biden uh, was in New York today and, and white supremacy used the term, said it was the poison of the nation needs to be addressed. Uh, which is so funny. We just heard his uh, eulogy for Jay Strom Thurmond. But anyway, um, before I, I get some of your thoughts, just what has transpired, I guess, over the last 72, 72 hours or so, particularly this will be great. You're someone who has an appreciation for history and you've studied these matters. 75 years old. Uh, does the name Joseph G. Christopher, is that familiar? Doesn't ring a no, bell? No, I don't know. Uh, no. Wow, that is Thursday. How so? Uh, well, J- Joseph G. Christopher was convicted for being a serial murderer. He's a white man of black males, specifically in Buffalo and New York City. Uh, in fact, this got such a big deal. They had 2,000 people in the early 1980s protesting in Buffalo uh, about white vigilante violence against black males. In fact, he was convicted. He's since deceased, but he was suspected of having killed two black male cab drivers and carved their hearts out. Read about that on Sunday. And I have been, I can't say stunned. I don't know what the correct word is, but I haven't talked to anyone 1980s is not ancient history. Even the stuff that we're talking about with the 1942 housing riot is not ancient history per se. But I mean, 1980s, really? That is not 
ancient history. You got lots of folks who, you know, were alive then, alive now, probably saw some of these events. I haven't heard his name mentioned. No one that I've spoken to has said, oh, yeah, I remember that the black guy that was really, excuse me, the white guy who was accused of carving out black people's hearts in Buffalo on this week. That hasn't been brought up at all. Cal's book club Thursday. Uh, have to go back and get the full title. Absolute madness. Catherine Pellinero, her book. She's a best-selling author. Her book on all of this. That will be our new book. Beautiful timing starting on Thursday, but I'm just appalled that no one, Joseph G Christopher, no one knows, no one remembers. And apparently these two cases are not being connected. Now you're going to tell me that nobody in the media can <laughs> Buffalo news, their newspaper. They got articles on jo- many, yeah. many, many articles on Joseph G Christopher and thousands of people come. This was national news, but anywho, uh, Thursday book club. What are, what are your thoughts on the Buffalo situation? Uh, professor Van Dusen. Well, what can I say that would provide, um, any more insight into the historical reality. Um, I mean, I think that part of the problem is that we're not, you know, exposing our kids to um, history. We're exposing them to um, a view of history that's um, been sanitized. And so these kids never grow up understanding. Uh, Joseph Christopher, thank you. That'd be a perfect example. Uh, when you have uh, an opportunity in elementary, middle, and high school to teach, say, American history, there should be um, a, a portion devoted to local history. So I would think in the city of Buffalo, there should be in the schools a time period, a week, a month devoted to local history during which these issues uh, that relate to uh, race relations um, be explored so that these kids come out of school fully cognizant of uh, the history of uh, these issues. I don't think this, um, these perpetrators of these horrendous crimes uh, have any sense of, uh, of history. And I think they are living in a um, echo chamber. They're probably listening to particular um screeds from particular cable networks or from internet uh, sources. And that's their version of reality. Um, It's their interpretation of history, completely untethered from, you know, the the reality of uh, events that have actually occurred that ought to be part of textbooks that are being diminished every day in certain states like Florida. Um, so that um, I think uh, we have a nation of uh, young people in particular who are growing up with a false sense of uh, exactly what the uh, relations between black and white, uh, men and women, um, Asians, and uh, all. And I, I think it's um, incumbent that we... Uh, fight against the attacks on our educational system because that's where the battlefield is from my perspective as an educator. Hmm. 
when you say our children don't have a sense of history, uh, so let me let's make sure I'm being as specific as possible. So do you think the problem is that younger children who are classified as white, uh, when they go out, practice racism, Peyton Gendron, 18 years old, Dylan Stormroof, I believe he was approximately 21 back in 2015 at the time of uh, his crimes. Even We talked about the case down in Georgia uh, where it was a 16-year-old white female. She had planned to attack a black church, but someone found her plans where she had plotted all this out and they foiled it before there was any sort of carnage. But uh, are you submitting that the problem is that younger white people who engage in racism, white supremacy and racist violence, that they are ignorant about some aspect of history uh, where if they did have this information, they would not engage in these racist acts? Well, my I don't know if the former Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, once said that all politics are local. Um, I believe that all history is local. Events take place uh, in a particular time and in a particular locale. And I think uh, students need to understand um, what takes place in their environment, what has taken place in their environment. In big cities like uh, I grew up in, like Detroit, there's plenty of lessons to learn about relationships between people when you have significant uh, segment of the population of one race and a significant population of another race, failure to address the problems associated with that relationship um, produces ignorance and uh, only fuels um, ignorant acts. So, yeah, um, I think it begins with um, education and, of course, some of it, maybe a large part of it, begins uh, uh, at home. Who knows what some of these uh, perpetrators of violence are learning from mom and dad or on the street from friends and associates and neighbors. But there has to be some um, opportunity for children to get the facts. And, um, you know, that's what public education is supposed to be about, to provide students with an objective version of reality. And, um, I'd certainly like to know uh, more about uh, the backgrounds of these uh, haters. Haters. That's interesting. That sort of, uh, and in my view, being serious, all of uh, your response, none of that is logical, uh, Mr. Van Dusen. And generally, when I hear that, because that's very common, like 90% of white people, I'm just giving an approximate number, but a large number of individuals classified as white say something very similar to what you just said, and it makes absolutely no sense at all. In fact, I would submit to non-white listeners what we just heard from Mr. Van Dusen in a variety of ways, I'm just picking out two, is him directly, consciously, practicing white supremacy racism one just the use of the term race relations Peyton Gendron Jr. Dylan Storm Roof even the overtaxation of black people in Detroit and beyond because that's not just one location none of that is race relations that is white supremacy racism 
terrorism, correct terms, race relations. I've talked about that term for years, even in James Lowen's book uh, where he uses it. We're talking about purging entire areas of black people, like thousands of black people being booted out and killed and property stolen and all of that. That's not race relations. Use correct terms. We're talking about a power dynamic, white power. That's what we're talking about. Number two, the whole ignorance. They have pictures of convicted mass killer Dylan Storm Roof at different historic sites throughout South Carolina. Apparently, just like Peyton Gendron, he did lots of research. Dylan Storm Roof and exactly what you local history. As I said, he was at South Carolina historic sites bragged about doing research in his manifesto so I don't see any evidence that and I didn't even really hear an answer to my question so if Dylan Storm Roof and Peyton Gendron if they get this information that's going to stop them from practicing white supremacy racism based on what? Where's the evidence of that at? Isn't it a question of engagement? When you have an opportunity to um, be presented with um, a fact it's one thing to interpret it a certain way, and it's one way to be persuaded in another way. We're in an age of uh, the Internet, and if you, you can take virtually any fact and you can twist and turn it as you will. Uh, I don't know what their particular um, social media experience was, but I'd be willing to bet that they were part of uh, a social network which took historical facts, but I can't even be certain of that because I don't know what they were involved in, uh, and uh, twisted them around. So I mean, this I mean, this I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I do not know exactly what their specific uh, psychiatric problem was, but I suspect there's a deep-rooted psychological explanation for how they got so twisted. How can you explain the kind of mad behavior in term in normal terms? You have to understand madness in terms of psychology, and I'm sure that a good psychologist could operate, uh, could offer some insight into what it would take to turn uh, an otherwise hopefully normal individual into uh, a madman. Mm. Again, just for our listeners, and hopefully people being more serious with the events that happened this weekend. None of that makes any sense in terms of just following logic. If we are in a system of white supremacy, which you agreed to. And in fact, I didn't say anything about social media, sir. Talk about twisting. I said, Dylan storm roof. They have photographs of him at South Carolina historic sites. I didn't mean a website. I mean like a physical location where they have markers. You are at X location where they have black plantations and whatever else throughout the glorious history of the Palmetto state. You didn't even address that. That's what I mean about just paying attention and following logic and specifically with. So if Dylan Stormroof, Peyton Gendron Jr., if they get this information, they'll stop practicing racism. Now you don't want to be a psychologist and all the rest of it. And in fact, even the madman, madness, one, the title of the book for Thursday is Absolute Madness. 
she's not talking about any of the subjects we're talking about today. She's talking about something from 40 years ago that everyone forgot. Two, in my view, that also is a direct act of racism, willful, conscious, uh, saying that these are madmen and what drove them to this. They're functioning like white people. I don't really know what's any different about their behavior, except it's uh, greater intense direct violence. I don't really see much of a difference between Peyton Gendron. If you're going to overtax black people in Detroit and boot them out in the street, maybe this takes a little bit longer. Maybe this is not as flashy for television, but black people being pooted out in the street, like, whoa, that's genocide right there. Uh, if and oh, that is true. if I just want to point to your book that we're talking about, like the flyer that I read, that's in fact, it sounds their conduct is normal, informed for white culture. That's the history of the book that we're talking about tonight. Unless I miss something. In fact, I don't even need a response right now. We can just walk through the book and we'll see if that's accurate. Do we do we hear anything in the book? That sounds like, wow, maybe Peyton Drindren read some of the same content. Some of the white people, some of the white actors in your book, maybe he read some of the same content and he is informed about white supremacy, racism and white culture. Maybe that's what it is. Not they're just ignorant. Getting specifically to the book. Now, again, I made an error. This is not even the book that we were supposed to be talking about, but compensating as best we can uh, to talk about the 1942 uh, Sojourner Truth housing riot prelude to the race riot of 1943. All of this uh, white violence, white violence, even the black people are fighting back in this one, but mostly white violence uh, that we're talking about. Um, You kind of set the table. Let me go to my notes for the book as we kind of walk into this. Uh, you kind of set the table with all, I guess for folks who listen, I already mentioned the book club and our new book, absolute madness. That's Thursday, but way back when we did read Isabel Wilkerson's the warmth of other sons, where she talks about the great migration of black people out of the South away from white terrorism. They thought to places like New York, Chicago, Detroit, California, blarty, blarty, blarty. This is a big part of uh, how all of this begins, uh, how you start off the book, uh, Professor Van Dusen, with black people coming into Detroit and it being uh, a housing issue. You have black people coming in and, whoa, what are we going to do in terms of warehousing all of these black people? Is this correct? Uh, correct. There were um, six different areas in Detroit where blacks were allowed to habitate. Do you want me to explain the? I didn't know if you were done or not. If you if you're pausing, no, uh, I, I, folks I, I, can. Sure. I, at early on, I, I kind of went on, and I. <laughs> oh, okay. No problem. Sure how you want, how much you want me to elaborate? No problem. Um, I'll, if you'll, I'll insert turn, in. James at, Lowen did at, talk about black people were not allowed to move willy nilly throughout northern cities. In fact, he talked about how there were more so-called sundown towns in the north and the south, but specifically places like right. Michigan. You don't just get to move anywhere once you get here. The Negros are in very specific locations. Yes, now you can give us the details. And that's because of the, that's because of the uh, property deeds. There were um, what were called restrictive uh, racial covenants. Uh, the estimate is about 80% 
of residential property in most of the major northern cities. So we're talking New York, Buffalo, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, et cetera. Approximately 80% of the residential property um, had these covenants, which uh, prevented uh, blacks from occupying uh, rental apartments or uh, flats or purchasing um, property. So what was left um, were these pockets uh, in Detroit, in northwest Detroit, near Burwood was one section. Uh, there was an area in uh, down by the river. It's called Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and Old West Side. There were anyway. There were these pockets, and the problem was with the Great Migration coming north. Uh, blacks and whites from the south were carrying with them their attitudes, their systems, and so with the overcrowding and considerable overcrowding. Uh, Detroit was like 98% occupied. Housing was occupied, over, over-occupied. People were living, um, the apartment, apartments were being divided into two. Um, so the population of Detroit grew from 1.6 million in 1940 to just about 2 million in 1943. And um, whites had difficulty finding places to live but not nearly the difficulty blacks did because of the explosion in population among blacks from 149,000, I think, in 1940 to, to double that number by 1950. And um, so we had these segregated areas, and it led to confrontation. It led to the 1943 race riot uh, and other problems problems with, um, I mean, the barriers were housing, the barriers were employment, education, transportation, public accommodations, healthcare. Um, Blacks were having difficulty um, getting good care, getting good food, um, going to movies. The people I interviewed uh, shared anecdotes with me. Um, I went into nursing homes and um, private homes and talk to uh, people who are willing to share their stories. And I record, um, I have to depend pretty much on primary sources in order to tell the story of this particular community in Northwest Detroit. Hmm. Context of white supremacy, our guest, Professor Gerald Van Dusen. Uh, some of this should be real familiar, painfully familiar uh, to some. We've heard about this uh, all throughout Isabel Wilkerson's uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, Black People Coming In, and uh, diff- super extraordinary difficulty in finding housing. One thing that were, I guess, two things. Number one, Professor Van Dusen did not pause in an attempt to offer brevity when discussing white ignorance we generally do not have white guests who pause. They will talk on and on and on about white ignorance Two, uh, with black people coming into this area. It's not barriers what they are. And that's, it's not race relations. It's not barriers. What they are experiencing is Peyton Gendron jr. We're going to practice white supremacy racism. In fact, let me read directly from the book. 
You're right. This is in Detroit's segregated neighborhoods. Chapter one after 1910. Facing acute housing shortages signaled by the arrival of black migrants from the south. Black Bottom gradually expanded northward to Gradient and eastward to St. Auburn. Housing conditions did not improve, however. Capricious landlords. These would be white landlords, yes? Yes. White landlords charged exorbitantly high rents for properties with unsanitary or unsafe conditions such as clogged plumbing and drainage faulty electrical outlets, leaky roofs, and unpredictable trash and rubbish pickups in many cases to make rent and accommodate new arrivals, borders were taken in further complicating healthy living space. And I thought we heard all this with uh, what they call it comorbidities and COVID did hit the Michigan Detroit area kind of hard, especially for black people, unless I've been misinformed and some of it might even trace back generationally to all these poor health and housing conditions in Detroit. And again, we heard this exactly for Chicago, New York, pick one of the major areas where black people migrated to during this time frame. I guess that is kind of important unless I'm talking crazy in terms of the health impact and looking at this generationally was COVID-19 one of the areas that was pretty bad or Michigan, Detroit area that was hit pretty hard by COVID-19 yeah. as we've been told black people specifically there. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Mm. Not crazy. And it's, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's go a ahead. Continuing problem. No, it's a continuing problem. Um, uh, Detroit, the numbers are uh, back up again for the city. It's one of the areas of the state that uh, is experiencing uh, increased numbers of uh, COVID infections. Wayne County. That's right. I just saw that they said the numbers were going back up. That's right. In fact, <laughs> I didn't have it to talk about because there were so many other things. But I mean, isn't this the state where they were going to kidnap? Governor Gretchen Governor. Whitner, Whitmer because of the COVID-19 regulations they had the white men incidentally yep. none of them convicted two mistrials and two exonerations now we had some listeners who said hey that is white supremacy racism right there more Peyton Gendron's violence solves everything and particularly when they had that uh, recent started study that came out that said hey when white people started hearing hey this COVID thing is just impacting black people hey I don't want to wear a mask or whatever this is just a nigger problem remember that study that just came out we played it on the program here uh, but we had listeners who said hey how do you have all these folks get con- uh, or charged with they're going to kidnap and I think they had plotted to execute the white governor and no one gets convicted Good gracious, like if they had been black, I think they would have got convicted. Do, do you have any thoughts on their inability to get any conviction so far? Or Muslim. No, no, it was a shock. It was it was a complete shock. Um, I didn't read the trial transcript to see what in God's name the jury was thinking. Uh, it was a complete shock. Entrapment. They said, hey, the agents were, they had, uh, what are they, yeah, informants, yeah, that's what they call it, informants. They were, you know, they they infiltrated the group and they were making these suggestions. So what, what do you think? Does that does that mean, hey, they were kind of set up and this they didn't even have any of these ideas. They were kind of misled in all of this. 
No. I mean, no. This was hardly this was hardly um, a spontaneous sort of decision on the part of the group to kidnap Governor Whitmer. I think it was part of a longstanding um, development. Um, COVID was just the convenient excuse. They would have taken any, I think in this case, any Democratic governor who um, challenged the, uh, what would you say? The, we have uh, large sections of Michigan which are red and um, outside the cities. And the people in these areas have a very different philosophy of life. And I don't have experience with these people. I don't know where they get their ideas from, but we have a militia, which is as strident in Michigan, probably as any place in the country. And they have very different ideas uh, about uh, politics and race and uh, white supremacy and every other uh, issue that uh, you've described tonight. Hmm. Race is white supremacy, but Professor Van Dusen, that is one where he is being truthful. I had, well, I can't really say forgotten, but I don't live in Michigan, and thankfully that's one of the states that I have not visited. It probably takes some real arm twisting to get me to come visit and hang out in Detroit, uh, even though I have been told they have nice beaches in Michigan, so maybe someplace else. Uh, <sighs> but they do. Do they have nice beaches there? Yes, we have um, beautiful beaches. I mean, we're surrounded by the Great Lakes, of course. You're on in Ontario and Michigan, Erie and Superior. Yeah, some beautiful freshwater beaches. Hmm. Maybe one day we'll have to think about it. Uh, but the militia element in Michigan, that is it. Talk about studying local history. If you, We have cows listeners. We have cows investors. I totally forgot quite a few of them in the Michigan area. You should study. You should be like an expert uh, on the history of the Michigan militia. I should too, Washington state Pacific Northwest is big Ruby Ridge. Like I should be expert on that too. Uh, But the folks in Michigan, because I think that even connects with uh, Timothy McVeigh. I think some of his homies were in the Michigan area. I'd have to go back and see, see, see. Uh, anyway, back to uh, the book, Detroit's Sojourner Truth Housing Riot of 1942. Our guest, uh, Professor Gerald Van Dusen, joining us live in Michigan. Uh, you write, I thought this one was important as well. And talking about the Birdwood Wall monuments of white supremacy, racism, and even having black people talking about this photograph of these black children where they don't even know what this wall is, what it means, you know, the history of it, which <laughs> we don't know who Joseph G. Christopher is either. Um, you write. The FHA, Federal Housing Administration, was reluctant to insure bank loans on such properties because the racially mixed areas, the agency reasoned, were likely to stir confrontation, lead to violence, and jeopardize the fiscal soundness of the investment. Undaunted, the developer approached the FHA a second time with a new and novel proposal. He would construct a wall six feet high and one foot thick between the hazardous neighborhood east of Burwood and the proposed new development. The FHA agreed to the compromise. The Burwood wall today stands as a monument to federal government complicity with the racial segregation in the city of Detroit. 
that what we were supposed to be talking all about that book instead but you know quite a bit of that history leaks into this uh, this book uh, as well uh, you push this is at the end kind of of the first chapter and then you move into kind of what sets the stage for the housing riot and you talk about the influx of black workers into this is World War II I cannot emphasize that enough uh, and that's another one where I say hey sir this is not ignorance when we're talking about all of the attention that led up to 1942, and we talked about some of this with Charles K. Hyde, Arsenal of Democracy. And in fact, he was a guest. It was just like today, history repeating. Charles K. Hyde, he wrote Arsenal of Democracy. Are you familiar with that book, uh, Professor Van Dusen? I know, I know of it. No, I've not read it. Okay, no, I've read it. He was a guest on our program, but he was a guest on our program in August... 2014 I say it's just like now because it was scheduled in advance by the time that program came it was two days after Michael Brown Jr. was shot in Missouri by the time the program came the so-called rioting had started so we're talking about world this subject matter while everything is happening in Missouri so we did all that blah 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 what I remember we talked all about what was happening in Missouri. People called in from Missouri and blah, 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 Mike Brown Jr. and all that. But before we got to that with Charles Hyde, he talked about how the bathrooms, hate strikes. He said that they brought in, and again, this is Adolf Hitler. V for victory. We got to win. Nazi Germany's Pearl Harbor. We got to win. The Japs. All hands on deck. Oh, no, 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 no. They hired, I think he said it was like 12. It wasn't 500. It wasn't a thousand. They hired like 12 black females. Legions of white women went on strike. You're going to let them use our bathroom? What? That's what I remember from that. Now, I do remember some of the conversation about what was happening in Missouri, but that's what I remember us talking about with Charles K. Hyde, white women being on strike. Can you tell us about some of this tension that led up to the 1942 housing riot? Sure. Um, in fact, you're talking about the factory. There were factory riots. There were factory riots um, in Detroit quite a bit. Um, and there was one particular um Riots, 25,000 whites walked off, uh, walked out to the plant because three uh, blacks had been assigned to the factory floor. And um, the KKK was um, uh, a strong element uh, within the, uh, un within the um, factories. And the um, management did little to uh, correct the problem. So um, the UAW stepped in, the federal government stepped in and uh, told the workers they either go back to work uh, immediately or would all lose their job. And that's pretty much what happened. So they're really, the 43, uh, the 43 um, uh, riot uh, was precipitated by a series of events, one of which was the construction of the Burwood Wall, the uh, Sojourner, Truth House, Sojourner Truth housing riot, and then a series of, um, of these hate strikes and it didn't, at that point, it didn't take much to set things off. And uh, so in the summer of 1943, things, in fact, did explode. And it was really, truly a riot, black against white. My father would tell me stories. He was an attorney working um, in downtown Detroit. And he'd say, look out one window. He'd see a group of whites chasing 
a couple of couple of blacks, and you look at another window and see a blacks chasing some whites, and it was just he said it was impossible to uh, navigate the streets trying to get home safely, um, and I remember um, when I was in college, um, I took social psychology, and um, the professor. Um, used the textbook by Roger Brown, a uh, Harvard professor, um, called Social Psychology, and he grew up in Detroit. He said that there was, in the text, um, in talking about the 43 riot and the chapter on mob behavior, that um, there was a palpable tension in the air. And I looked up the guy in his biography, I think, uh, on the internet, Wikipedia at the time, and um, he would have been like 17 or 18, and he felt a palpable tension. And I was thinking at 17, I don't know what that would have meant uh, to feel a palpable tension in the air, the kind of tension that arises from uh, some kind of threat to, to uh, body and soul. And so it would not have taken much, would not have taken much to set things off. And it didn't. In fact, there were just some rumors, a couple of rumors started the whole process off and uh so 43 people were killed millions of dollars in property damage and uh that was the um biggest riot of the second world war all started because of a series of events that uh um took place years before months before We do have uh, Neutralizing Workplace Racism every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, same program time as today, just on Fridays, uh, and trying to talk about how racism operates in the workplace and strategies to work against it. Uh, I can't say I was surprised. I mean, a good chunk of this is workplace racism, but I just thought I'd read a few of the uh, passages here before, just uh, talking about some of the tension that led up to all of this in 1942 with the Sojourner Truth housing riot and then 43. Um on the jobs and again this is World War II all hands on deck every time I see that image of Rosie the Riveter I think of Charles K. Hyde's book because that's what we brought up like oh no this is not all democracy and we're all in it together sister no white supremacy racism even about bathroom access especially about bathroom access apparently Uh, you write this is chapter 2 venturing outside the enclave uh, the automobile industry absorbed large numbers of of black job applicants, though not equally among car companies or even within different plants of the same company. The first factories to integrate were Ford, Briggs and Dodge. Overall, two thirds of blacks hired were classified as unskilled laborers, while the same was true for only one fourth of whites. Such unskilled jobs included sweeping, tending the furnace and iron smelting and pouring semi-skilled positions when they were available were limited to the most dangerous or undesirable such as sand blaster shear operator or heater i'm skipping down a little bit health issues surfaced most dramatically in the actual working conditions on the shop floor blacks were subjected to the dirtiest most labor intensive and most hazardous areas 
of the plant. Each area or department, however, had its particular set of health issues. In the River Rouge plant's massive blast furnaces and foundries, or in the toxic air environment of the paint shops, blacks were most often found. The workplace environment for African Americans contributed to a disproportionate degree of exposure to dangerous, toxic elements in the paint shops. For example, black workers were exposed to solvents, additives, and other chemicals used in the vehicle painting process, leading to increased risk of several kinds of occupation-related cancers, such as lung, bladder, and pancreatic cancer. In the blast furnaces and foundries, workers were exposed to molten metal explosions, heat exhaustion and stroke, severe burns, and eye disorders from ultraviolet or infrared radiation emanating from the molten metal. Neutralizing Workplace Racism Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, The only thing I can say on this one is, hey, we just heard this in South Carolina, except they were talking about a nuclear plant. Oh, that was World War Two as well. Oh, my God. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. That was the river of the what was it? The river plant site in South Carolina. Jay Strom Thurman. He helped get the land. That was World War Two. That was why they put it there. They did the exact same thing. I can't even. T- Did you have any more comments on on this section talking about all? Because this was a part of the tension: black people resisting these really poor and unhealthy, unsanitary workplace and living conditions. That was a part of what led to the so-called riots. Yes. Yes, and keep in mind that um, a lot of the whites coming north um, became members of the Detroit Police Department, and um, so they weren't about to be protected on the street. In any terms, in terms of any confrontation, uh, or on the buses when there were confrontations, uh, uh, and that continues. That continues uh, into the seventies, at least. Uh, that's what I'm looking at uh, presently. Looking at the nineteen uh, seventies, the uh, Detroit police and the disproportionate number of uh, white police officers uh, controlling and containing, uh, even after fair housing. After the 1968 fair housing, um, the um, problem with blacks having difficulty finding good housing outside of the uh, areas that they previously had been uh, limited to uh, purchasing homes in. Now they could technically purchase a home, but you had problems with harassment and other forms of uh, of threats to uh, blacks, so that even though uh, they legally could purchase property in Detroit in certain sections or in the suburbs. They were being prevented from doing so by uh, hate. But, you know, so anyway, that's what I'm exploring right now. It continues from I wanted to move forward from uh, the Second World War to uh, what happened in 1967, the next uh, big um, rebellion. Hmm, I see. You said they attempted to move, but they were prevented by hate. H-A-T-E. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Um, that, 
that there'd be individuals classified as white practicing white supremacy is what stopped them? Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what I mean I about mean, there was we just had Peyton Gendron. Yeah. Like, pff, we can be specific about things. That, And I'm not pointing this out to nitpick and what have you. That right there, all of that pussyfooting and what have you, the race relations and separation, white privilege, hate stuff, individuals classified as white. That is the problem and the reluctance to point that out consistently. That is a major reason why this can all of it, Peyton Gendron, the overtaxation, all of it, not pussyfooting about that and not being accurate and honest. That's a major part of why this continues, unless I'm in error. I will take it on being logical then. Uh, let's see. Uh, you gave us your future project chapter. I can walk it right down from chapter three. The trouble begins. There was so much important information. In fact, our, I didn't even give it the number. If you all have questions for professor Gerald Van Dusen, the number is seven, two, zero, seven, one, six, seven, three hundred. The code five, six, four, nine, four, three, pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, and we have folks in Michigan you should definitely take advantage get a question in if you have one for uh, Professor Van Dusen uh, let's see before I normally our mom in Michigan normally asks our guest this question but I'll steal it and ask her this time because I want to get to a specific passage in your book uh, and this all is the, the build up. They're trying to get housing. You've got this influx of black people coming in. They're trying to get housing. White people don't want to, you know, <laughs> don't want to live around too many niggers. So that is a problem. Uh, who do you think is more informed about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works? Do you think white people are more informed about all of this, how it works day to day? Or do you think non-white people are more informed about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. Oh, Professor Van Dusen, are you there? Not hearing you, not hearing you. Are you there? Not hearing you, Professor. It looks like he's still in the lawn, so I don't know. What's uh did you hit your mute button? Let's see. Or maybe he's not, I don't know. Maybe he dipped on us, which would be fine too if he did. Let's see. We'll ring back, see if he got disconnected. Oh, oh okay. Hello. Yes, yes, sir. We, yes, the phone the call got dropped. I'm sorry, like, I didn't going? have I was, a I was sitting here asking, like, hey, what's what's going on? Let me get did you hear my question? Uh the call got dropped. I oh, no, did no. not hear a question. No problem. I'll give it again. Uh, so my question again, um, and I said, I'm, I'm stealing. Uh, we have a uh, investor in Michigan, several of them actually, but a mom there specific, well, I guess several of them. One mom specifically who normally calls in to ask uh, this question, but I'm stealing it from her today. Um, who do you think is more informed about what racism, white supremacy is how it works. Do you think individuals classified as white 
are more informed about what racism is, how it works day to day, or do you think non-white people are more informed about what racism is, how it works day to day? Well, I, don't, I just don't think there's any question that uh, blacks would understand because of experience. I mean, they, they live it. They live the experience. Um, you know, um, in, in terms of the, um, can, can we contextualize it in terms of like the overassessment of property taxes? There was a, um, I, I'm going to try to answer it this way. There was a um, 600 member online uh, forum about the overassessment of these taxes. And uh, the keynote speaker was um, uh, Sonia Bonet. And I, I copied down one quote from her during her, her talk. I, to me, it captured um, the essence. Hello? Hello? Oh, yes, sir. We can hear you. Yes, Hello? sir. Yes, sir. We can hear you. Okay. Um, as I say, I, Sonia Bonet, in, in describing her situation, she had, um, her property had been overassessed and her home had been foreclosed upon. And she said, um, and I quote, I think that the city really needs to know that when you put the community um, in the position, in this position, these positions that is of being overassessed, you're not just taking a building from us, you're taking the American dream from us. I thought that was a rather telling comment. She, her home was, um, as I say, she uh, lost her home and I think she lost hope. And uh, so she's looking for as many Detroiters uh, are looking for uh, reparations, some form of um, um, reassessment, some form of compensation for the the um, financial loss for, in some cases, uh, the loss of their property. I think Renisha McBride's family was among the victims of that as well after the fact. I have to go back to do my research, but I think that might have been, I mean, on top of everything else. Um, that, okay, so, and I just pointing out for listeners, he said he thinks black people are more informed, and uh, I didn't say that in my question. My question was white people or non-white people, but got it. Um, I'm just, I'm cutting to uh, your book. This is chapter three of Detroit's Sojourner Truth Housing Riot of 1942. Uh, the last page of chapter three, even though there are a few other juicy tidbits in that chapter, uh, you write, <clears throat> am I saying this right? Conant, is that how you say it? Conant Gardens? Conant? Conant? Conant, Conant Gardens, that's right. Okay. Meanwhile, the Conant Gardens Community Association had withdrawn its opposition to the housing project. Have to even give it beforehand. So this is a so-called middle-class group of black property yep. owners who initially were not That's so correct. happy about the Sojourner Truth housing community coming in. They thought this might be some temporary, dilapidated nonsense and pull down housing values for folks at homeowners. You know, mess up housing values, everything. So once they found out it's temporary, I mean, it's going to be permanent. Then I'm like, oh, okay, 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 cool in the gang, no problem. So they withdraw their support for a little bit more context. So he writes. Meanwhile, the Conant Gardens Community Association had withdrawn its opposition to the housing project, having recently learned that it was to be a permanent settlement, not the cheaply constructed temporary barracks that residents had believed. More importantly, perhaps, residents had become alarmed at the blatant 
racial tone of the protest emanating from the Polish parish. The association's intent to join with the whites in the area had been based on what they perceived to be a shared belief that property values would be threatened by such a project, not out of any racial animus. To learn that the argument advanced by white homeowners and local parishioners was less about social economics and more about race was both bewildering and humiliating. In the days and weeks ahead, many of the association members would feel a profound sense of guilt over what they had initiated by seeking to meet jointly with their white neighbors in a common cause question before we get any details so does this demonstrate that the black people were more informed about racism what it means to be white specifically some how so well in the case of Conant Gardens I think the uh, there was a perception of shared values among some blacks and local whites. They had lived in peace, uh, at least to the degree that um, they were able to um, obtain um, uh, several generations, two or three generations anyway, of um, increasing property value, FHA loans. Um, and with those increased property values, they were able to uh, sell and buy larger properties, do the things that they saw their white neighbors do. This was within a tight enclave. Of course, they seemed to accept the fact that they could not move into the neighboring areas. So they made the most of what they had, as did one or two other enclaves. There was one on the west side. It's called the west side. So it was um, an area of um, middle-class blacks that were emulating the values of middle-class whites. I'm not sure what more I can say Wow, uh, I was getting ready to go to the switchboard. Like, that's one of those as well where I would hope listeners now evaluate. Now, did you get a reasonable answer to the question? And also, just with the passage that I read, I want you to think of times in your life where you felt guilt, humiliation, shame about something that you have done, and think, wow, was I really informed about that or maybe I wasn't as informed as I thought I was the latter that's what I am suggesting and really that must be a really important one to racist white supremacists to insist that black people are experts about racism that's all I can conclude because the evidence is so overwhelming we are not Uh, speak of uh, the victim 
Uh, I maybe should have shut my mouth and let her ask. She could have got her own question out. Uh, our lovely black mommy in Michigan, uh, if you have other questions, since I stole your typical one, uh, if you have any questions for Professor Gerald Van Dusen, you should be with us. Good evening, uh, Gus, uh, to the guests and the listeners. I'm so happy you asked that question. It's been a minute since I've been able to catch the live um, broadcast, so I'm very pleased that you did get the question out. I don't think that the question was answered uh, to my satisfaction, but I am um, appreciative that you got it in. Um, I do have another question for the guests. Um, what are your thoughts or opinions on Section 8 vouchers? Um and how the system of racism, white supremacy, um, is practiced on non-whites using Section 8 um, vouchers. And I'll mute. I, I'll mute my line. Thanks for I, taking my call. I am not going to address a subject that I'm not familiar with sufficiently. Um, I do not know enough about Section 8 vouchers. Okay. Um, do you have any opinion on just low-income housing um, or anything like that and how the system of racism, white supremacy is practiced well, by white? Or, you know, do you have I, I think, yeah, um, from what I know, from what I know, um, the difficulty obtaining or, in this case, building low-income housing is a function yet certainly in the Detroit suburbs of zoning. Uh, there are efforts to um, prevent uh, low-income housing uh, by using um, zoning regulations, making sure that uh, no apartments can be built and that properties are a certain size. And that, of course, will have impact with um, in terms of uh, people of low income. That'll keep... Um, people out. Um, so I, I think just there's more sophisticated um, efforts to keep uh, low-income people out than um, in the old days when there would be, as we saw in Warren, Michigan, a northern suburb of Detroit, there were physical threats, bricks thrown through windows. That's one way to uh, keep people out. But um, now they're using, you know, um, more sophisticated methods. It's a little more sanitized. Um, I would say um, zoning regulations is the um, most frequent tool used to prevent low-income housing from uh, being built in um, Detroit, certainly in the suburbs. I'm not sure that addressed uh, the question. I hope so. Hello? Well, yep, I just kind of wanted to get your uh, thoughts and opinion. That's sufficient if that's all you have. Um, I missed the first part of the uh, program. I just want to know, did you um, agree with Gus's definition of uh, racism, white supremacy? That was the first time. I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to see the definition. I'd like to um, better understand the definition. He read it off to me, and it made sense. But I'd like to see it and study it, think about it. Um, you know, it was the first time I've um, heard the definition in quite those terms, to be honest. Okay, and my last thing, just um, to in response to that, um, since I did, and I apologize, I'm chiming in late. 
What is your definition of racism, white supremacy? Well, I've not crafted one. I mean, I don't have a, a, a definition of white supremacy other than, uh, I, I guess, this might be viewed as superficial. So what do you mean when you say it then? Yeah, what, so what when, I, when I say white supremacy, when I say white supremacy, race, we'll, we'll, we'll just start with racism since that's the more common term uh, I've heard white people use. Well, I think race, as I understand its application, as I understand its application uh, by whites of my acquaintance, it would be. Um, Racism would be a, a system of beliefs that um, allow whites the um, boy. I'd have to, <laughs> as a writer, I'd have to sit down and craft this out. Um, it's a belief in the superiority of one group over another, um, and all benefits accrue when one group is superior to another in terms of housing, in terms of education, in terms of public accommodations, et cetera. And the way you get around it, the way you avoid. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just going to say that despite, um, legislation such as fair housing in 1968, uh, the way that you continue to um, uh, foster those beliefs, those racist beliefs, are by using uh, tools that uh, circumvent um, the historical uses of uh, violence. And you, you use things like you know, zoning regulations and the like to keep people separated, to keep walls between people. Did that answer your question, our uh, mom in Detroit? Um, yeah, I'll accept that answer. Thank you for taking my call. Right on. Let's see. Our caller, two two six two 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 six two. Did you have a question for Professor Gerald Van Dusen? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, guys, for taking my call, and greetings to everyone online, and uh, greetings to Professor uh, for coming to speak to us. <clears throat> um, professor, you said earlier that when you interview the non-white black people in Detroit, you had to convince them to talk with you. Was that, was that correct? Um, a number of people were reluctant to talk to me. So I had to talk to them, try to persuade them that um, I was writing a history of the neighborhood. And um, there was a good deal of reluctance, uh, um, to um, talk to me. So um, I tried to uh, persuade them that my intentions were honorable, that I was trying to um, write an account, obtain information 
because there was no other way I could obtain information. There were no books, local history books, and I needed to understand their perspectives, okay. their experiences. Um, um, sir, Professor, thank you. Um, I'd like me to confirm that before my question. Uh, my question is, could you tell us a fully fleshed out the tactics and the verbiage that you use to convince these non-white black people to trust you? Um, I gave them um, some personal background. I told them where I was born and raised and educated. I was, in fact, born, raised, educated, and employed in the city of Detroit. Uh, I was teaching at the local uh, community college, and um, I, I was not the um, an outsider in terms of uh, geography, and I had a desire and, and great interest in um, filling some of the holes, some of the local history holes, because nothing had been written about the area. There had been lots written about other areas of Detroit, and this was the last section of Detroit um, that had um, that Detroit had um, to complete its map um, purchased to become a city of 139 square acres, and it was oh. kind of ignored. And oh. so I asked the neighbors that to please, um, you know, let me tell me the story so I would know more about the area. And they started to um, okay. tell me their, you know, it was that simple. I mean, I wasn't trying to. Okay, so you don't have any, like, tactics or certain uh, words that you use to convince them to trust you. Is that what you're saying? No, I was, it was just, we were just having conversations, and uh, I asked them if I could come back and there talk was no some more. Are there anything like that, any kind of threats or any kind of promises that are made to them? Um, by me, to them? Yes. Um, no, 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 we're just having conversations. No incentives and, at all. And really anecdotes. I was trying to collect anecdotes about growing up in the area and uh, just try to get a consistent picture of what life was like because I could not find anything published um, and even in the archives of the Detroit Public Library, I could find no records of um, the area, uh, records of people relating uh, what took place during the period of time that I finally wrote about. So I would try to reconstruct it. Um, I went into, as I indicated earlier, I went into um, you know nursing homes and um, assisted living okay. facilities, and then okay. I just walked up and down the neighborhoods, I'm, I'm engaged sorry, people in conversation. I'm sorry, sir. I'm uh, sorry, I'm sorry if I'm you. being a little... Um, that'll be it for me, Gus. Sure. Thank you. For sure, for sure. We've heard a number of different white guests who've done these type of uh, projects where they had to go and talk to black people who were older and, you know, talk about some really gruesome experiences uh, strikes and what have you because you couldn't go to the bathroom or not being able to get housing and that type of thing uh, and where the white people have said I remember uh, uh, E.R. Bills talk, talked about James Lowen work James Lowen's work and the purges of black people uh, throughout this part of the world uh, E.R. Bills 
he talked about one such incident in Texas and he said the same thing that he went around and talked to black people or what have you and you know was able to get them to to trust him or what have you it seems like it uh, lots of folks have been able to do this over the years uh, let's see let me before I nab some of our other callers just pausing to to nab some of the other important information from chapter three the trouble begins uh, so this is the seven mile uh, the seven mile Fenelon homeowners improvement association now this should be painfully yes. familiar for any folks who have studied kind of the history like Chicago and other areas where black people have tried to get housing and you have all of these types of associations that pop up with white members Peyton Gendron oh my goodness the Negros what are we going to do might mean violence might mean all kinds of things direct indirect uh, but you write <clears throat> Uh, an immediate consequence of the Pershing High School meeting was the galvanization of various white interests in torpedoing the Black Defense Housing Project. Again, now this is World War II. We're supposed to be torpedoing Nazis and the Japs. <laughs> nah, we're torpedoing Black citizens who are just trying to get housing to help with the war effort no less uh the spontaneous in quotes creation of the seven mile fenelon homeowners improvement association had little to do with addressing residential structures habitation and commercial properties its boilerplate bylaws and regulations were merely a cover for its sole obsession to enlist as many local white residents and organizational entities as soldiers in quotes in the army fighting federal interference in a local matter my god we just heard that did not just say jay strom thurman south Carolina. we just heard all this we just heard all this uh it was uh, wait a minute, i'm skipping a little. there was an overseas war to be fought after all it was almost a matter of christian faith that this new association was fighting the good fight. I'm just skipping down a few pages. Uh, you continue in one right. Lewis Murphy and Mary Conti of the Catholic worker newspaper paid a visit to St. Louis, the King to interview parishioners concerning the sojourner truth controversy troubled by all the flag waving by Catholics assigned to man the various picket lines and the message such symbolism was invoking, the pair of interviewers tried to approach various members from a religious rather than political perspective. In one rather galling exchange with the parishioner, County recalled, I said to a Catholic self-called that Christ died for both white and Negro. And he actually denied it another good Catholic in quotes accused members of the Catholic workers movement of not being real Catholics but communists and you know nigger lovers at this point Murphy and Conti decided to step away and reconsider how to strategically re-engage with the parish members Unfortunately, their plans were terminated when they 
were followed by a group of men making menacing gestures and uttering threats. Peyton Gendron. Conti concluded, I have never in my life seen hate personified as I did in the persons of those Catholics. Now, I did do a little bit of skipping around, but I mean, wow. Now, that is important for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, I guess two major points that I get out. The first, we'll get your thoughts, Professor Van, uh, Gerald Van Grusen, Van Dusen. Uh, the first, you started all that saying, hey, and you talked about, hey, we've got lots of immigrants, white people coming from all over, Poles and all these folks coming in. Hey, we are able to galvanize around the concept of we are white, our opposition to black people. I thought that was hugely important. Can you speak to that? Well, you're talking, we're talking second and third generation polls. Um, first generation polls in Detroit work side by side um, and in some instances lived next door to each uh, other, blacks and uh, poles. But second generation started to think a little differently started to uh, think that uh, they were better than blacks and they wanted they wanted to uh, separate and so you had 35 parishes uh, in Detroit and the Archdiocese of Detroit the Cardinal was not interested in uh, interfering in the goings-on at Seven Mile and Fenelon and um, the Polish people um, pretty much um, decided uh, as a result of um, uh, the local pastor, in this case, a specific church, uh, to um, organize a response against the um, intrusion of the federal government uh, into what they perceived to be a local matter. Uh, and if it was to be a local matter, they had tremendous influence over the Detroit Housing Authority, and the Detroit Housing Authority would not allow uh, this housing project to become a um, black housing project. So uh, it began as a um, church activity, and it evolved into a um, picketing situation, a rally situation, and then a confrontation uh, where dozens of people were sent to the hospital. Nobody was killed, but that would have been the very next stage had there not been some police uh, interference. And uh, so that's the context for that particular event. It was uh, Poles, Catholics uh, against uh, the construction of, not the construction of the Sojourner Truth housing project, but the occupation of the housing project by blacks. Context of white supremacy. Um, the second concept, and you're saying the uh, folks after they've been here and the assimilation, hey, we can move up the ranks. We can be accepted as white. Let's do that. The second part, and We've seen this over and over and over. They mentioned Dylan Stormroof. He did make his attack in a church. 
we heard about, in fact, the book, the author, J. Russell Hawkins, he was a guest on the program right at the end of March. His book, The Bible Told Them So, How White Evangelicals Fought to Preserve White Supremacy. That's why I said J. Strom Thurmond and all this sounds so familiar. This to me sounds very much like the religion of white supremacy, especially when I see lines uh, such as, hey, this was a matter of Christian faith. We are fighting the good fight, keeping the Negro out of Sojourner Truth. Just can you, it's, I mean, using, I'm saying religion of white supremacy because I don't think we think of it that way, but I mean, that's what this is. Religion of white supremacy as a galvanizing force to bring white people together in Detroit. I uh, went into the Archdiocese of Detroit, into the archives, um, and I had a couple of seminarians that helped me try to locate any communication between the archbishop and the um, uh, pastors of the local Polish parishes, and we could find no attempt by the archbishop to uh, uh, attempt to uh, address the issues associated with uh, Sojourner Truth. Uh, it was kind of hands-off. Uh, attitude was hands-off. Leave us alone. We'll resolve this our, ourselves. And um, since you had coffers, you know, uh, you know, the Polish um, population in Detroit was the largest, uh, was the largest ethnic population, white ethnic population in Detroit. And a great deal of money um, came into the coffers of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and so the Archbishop was loath to address the issues associated with um, Sojourner Truth. Religion of white supremacy. Uh, star six one for other folks who have questions. We will get nab our other folks with a hand. Just before I get to that, because I mentioned the flyer, uh, I think this is huge. This is Peyton Gendron. Junior, Dylan Roof, exact same concerns. Uh, that flyer that says help the white people to keep this district white men needed. And then it gets to the bottom. We need every white man. We want our girls to walk on the street, not raped. Had there been any white women or white men uh, raped by black people during this time period? Was that a problem, raping Negroes? No, no. Uh, the um, pastor had written a letter to the um, his representative and within the letter itself, and I think I quote from the letter uh, somewhere near that section of the book where he um, in an offhand remark said it's really going to be very important that you address this issue and resolve it in favor of the uh, um, the Polish community because uh, we can't have um, our white girls um, and I don't remember the precise words at that point our white girls subjected to uh, the, the dangers associated with uh, uh, blacks being that close to our parish so he made the appeal, uh, you know, directly in a letter to uh, Congressman uh, Teneritz, uh, Representative Teneritz, the former mayor of Antramic, who became the representative of 
both Conan Gardens, the black community, and the um, white the uh, white Polish parishes. But as soon as he uh, received um, letters and other forms of communication from the, the world parishes, he uh, took their side and uh, did everything he could to convince the uh, federal government to uh, change Sojourner Truth to a, um, a white housing project unsuccessfully. my dear Mr. Palmer would mean utter ruin for my people who have mortgaged their homes to the FHA and not only that but it would jeopardize the safety of many of our white girls as no colored people live closely by <laughs> like uh but Siri because I mean hey Dylan Roof, Peyton Gendron and it's it's here twice in the flyer and it's in all capital letters bold face print men needed and then even before we get to raped white girls we need every white man what can you help us understand what exactly is white masculinity white manhood that they're calling on here that I would say hey this is the exact same white manhood that we just witnessed in Buffalo Dylan Stormroof in Charleston can you help us uh, understand what is this call to white man manhood that is being requested here? Well, <laughs> you want me to explain white male psychology? Is that, I mean, we're talking scapegoating, using someone else to um, possibly explain shortcomings, um, problems that arise in one's life, one benefits from believing that uh, obstacles to success are the result of someone else. Um, I mean, that's classic scapegoating. It's, it's historical. Um, I think people everywhere have always used uh, others, individuals, and groups. Well, to, uh, I'm not really asking about scapegoating. I'm asking about white manhood, because this flyer is not talking about scapegoating. I don't think when they're saying we need white men, I don't think they're saying we need white men so that we can come and just scapegoat black people. Like I think they're talking about something very different and here this call for white men, unless I'm missing it. Well, rallying the community, rallying the community, get all the white men together and rep and to, um, uh, become a, significant force uh, and to um, convey to the White Housing Authority and to the federal government that uh, a change ha is absolutely necessary and that they possess not only uh, support from the religious community, but they have political power and failure to address their concerns or fears associated with the occupation of Sojourner Truth by blacks will result in um, loss at the polls. I mean, it's it's a political threat, is what it amounts to. You don't think there's any sort of threat of violence, even within this call, within this poster? It's just political. It's just a political threat. That's it. No, of course, but that would be the under. Tone. I mean, that would be the assumption. But the threat of violence is always there. 
but I think they're trying to ad- address the specific audience that has the power to make the change. And um, they're not about to say we're going to, uh, uh, well, maybe they are, maybe, maybe both. Do something now when you have the power to do something uh, with the undertone that if you don't, then we'll take matters into our own hands because there are enough people here uh, to do so. I know we talked about the hate strikes and what have you. Uh, This is a specific call to white men. Uh, What was the role of white women in the midst of all of this happening with the parishes and uh, groups that are going out to talk to elected officials and what have you, what are white women doing in the midst of all of this? Uh, In many cases, um, you you can see by the photographs, there were uh, quite a number of white women pushing strollers, carrying babies um, when they were um, surrounding the area, preventing the trucks uh, in the initial attempt to uh, bring the moving trucks in since the, um, uh, the housing development had been approved for move-in. And so they surrounded the area and prevented the trucks from entering the actual uh, compound. So there was participation. I don't know what the proportion was. It was significantly more men, but women were very much a part of the um, protest. context of white supremacy star six one for folks who have questions for professor gerald van dusen uh let's see retired firefighter in florida uh, if you had a question for professor van dusen you should be with us greetings everyone greetings uh just the first the first question is just for clarification uh, to the uh, professor, uh, did I hear you said say that uh, there were no Marines during World War II, no black Marines? No, 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 no. At the beginning of the war, the intention was uh, to prevent blacks from joining the Marines. There was the intention, just as there was uh, the intention by the Red Cross to prevent blacks from donating the blood. As the war developed, then things changed. But there was okay. A, um, I, I was I, yeah. I was I was just just wanted to get that confirmation. Uh, oh, and sure. you cleared it up. Uh, my first question is, uh, what book do you suggest for white youth that would uh, uh, erase away their confusion and or <laughs> racist activities? I would say less a book than engagement. Um, I would say, uh, I don't know that we have um, added local history books, but I would say local history books of communities, the development of communities. Um, the, I would think the education schools in which instructors are prepared to enter the classrooms of elementary and middle schools I think that's where the uh, the effort should be made uh, to uh, train teachers to engage students in the issues of the day. Um, I could not 
we don't we don't have we don't have the textbooks. Um, we we don't have uh, textbooks that address the issues. That's that's certainly a problem. I don't think you answered my question. I was asking for a book. Yeah, I, we and don't. You have, didn't give me. I don't. You didn't give I me don't a have book. The, I don't have a book. I don't have the title. You mean an elementary school book that kids would learn from? The history books that we have don't I, adequately. When I when I when I when I describe when I said youth, I was just describing uh, any uh, white young person that is either in uh, uh, K through 12 or uh, at a university. And all you had to do was just name at least one book. I can't do that. That would, or you can't? No, I can't. I don't know. <laughs> you don't, because you don't know of one? Well, if they exist, I don't know of them. Okay. I can tell you. So you know, like, your, your, your thoughts, your thoughts, I'm responding to something that I heard you say earlier as a remedy. You, you first stated that white people are basically, you were stating that white people are ignorant to racism. And you stated that if people like the killer white supremacists uh, from a couple of days ago, uh, perhaps if he, uh, uh, was involved with studying uh, information on racism, white supremacy, that uh, that event wouldn't have occurred. So that's, that was my reasoning for asking you. Sure. And my, you, my point. So you, well, come well, up, you, can't, you can't come up with a, a book at all. Well, the, there there are great books that address or, or, the issue. Or it doesn't like, have to be a book or any any other type of information. I would say that it all begins in the school of education. I would say teachers need to uh, develop strategies for communicating local history and teaching students about the local community. And the textbooks that we have now, I think, are inadequate to address the issues that produce the kind of mindset. Uh, that um, we see um, today. I mean, there are some great books, The Origins of the Urban Crisis by uh, you know Thomas Segrew, but those are scholarly books. I just don't think we have an adequate supply of <clears throat> an adequate supply of textbooks for elementary school students, and I think that's where the uh, that's where a defect exists. And I'm not. You know, could, you name, could you name me a white teacher in the entire world that would be interested into teaching white people about racism? Um, I would say Thomas Segrew, uh, Heather, Th Heather Thompson. Now, these people that you know, I know of, um, but I can't, I couldn't go beyond that because uh, I don't know who would be interested and who wouldn't. What is your purpose of, of uh, writing books on racism? What is your um, ultimate purpose, ultimate goal? I'm a detritor and I've felt that there was a significant 
gap. You, excuse me, I, I didn't hear it. You're, you're what? I'm a Detroiter, and my interest is in the city the what, history uh, hold, hold, of the city. Hold on, sir. Sir, sir, what of what of the Detroiter? I was born, raised, educated, and employed within the city of Detroit, and my interest is in. Oh, you're Detroiter. Oh, okay, that's what you said. Okay. So you, so you're from Detroit. Okay. That's correct. Go ahead. And my interest, my interest is in my city, and I felt that there were some significant gaps or lapses in the local history of Detroit the section of Detroit where I was um, educated and I decided to uh, read about one section in Northwest Detroit that had not been uh, written about. There were no <clears throat> local histories. And so I decided since no one was making that effort that I would uh, attempt to uh, um, learn more about it, learn more about the uh, area from an historical point of view. Do you think the system of white supremacy uh, has lasted for so long because it's successful? I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. It's a difficult question. And I'm not a, hmm. <clears throat> I'm not a professional historian. Um, I'm an English major, and I decided to... Um, you know, read about my local community, the community in which I grew up. And I would speculate, I suppose, that uh, it's probably um, been a strategy uh, that has been successful. And uh, it's just it become, it's become more sophisticated. The techniques used to keep the races apart have become more sophisticated. Hang on a second there, uh, retired firefighter. Make sure we can nab our uh, other caller. Uh, Bay Area Mom, Bay Area Mom, did you have uh, a question for Professor Van Dusen? Even though he did, I pointed that out repeatedly. This is going all the way back to Professor J. Uh, Russell Hawkins. Uh, white supremacy racism is not separation. We wouldn't have all this child rape and what have you if the so-called races were separated that is not the issue at all we are talking about a power dynamic i pointed that out repeatedly uh white people will use words incorrectly to practice racism and that is a major one separation is not is not the problem if that was the case peyton gendron wouldn't have even got to the supermarkets we have been separate bay area mom did you have a question for professor gerald van dusen Hi, thank you for taking my call. Good evening to you and everyone on the line. I have two questions, if I may. The first one is, why would the white youth replace the system of racism, white supremacy with a system of justice? What would make them want to do that? I'm sorry, could you could you repeat the question? Um a couple of words cut out. Sure, I'm on a sure. cell phone. So I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, um, because uh, we're talking about um, youth and um, the white youth uh, being more or less educated on um, racism and not being racist. And the caller before me had stated, uh, 
if you could kind of um, share some books or information that you, that, that you could give to the youth to help them replace the system of racism, white supremacy with a system of justice. My question for you is why would the white youth want to replace this system with a system of justice? Why would they want to not be racist against people that are not classified as white? Well, they, in fact, would not be motivated unless they were uh, educated. I mean, there's no reason. For the most part, um, students are in segregated schools. Schools are still largely segregated. So, and even okay. in those, um, so they're just, they're, the motivation would not exist. And that's why I think, you know, the best shot we have is through education, but I don't think we have the resources. Um, we The teachers, I don't think, have the resources. I don't think they have the training, and, and they certainly don't have the books to um, provide an alternative um. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for answering that. The second question is: um, You stated earlier that uh, white people were more um, maybe confused or less educated on white supremacy versus blacks. We are more educated on this particular system. And you kind of stated that uh, it's because uh, we kind of know our place and we sort of know that we're not allowed to do that. So do you think that knowledge, the fact that we know our place versus the people that created the system knowing to put us in a place? Well, I, I, that language is kind of uh, loaded uh know our place I, I i didn't intend it in the sense that uh, blacks accepted uh the situation accepted the uh, uh mm-hmm. you know I, I don't mean to suggest that by by any means mm-hmm. um we, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the uh as as we had in detroit in 67 the rebellion and we wouldn't we wouldn't have riots i think if if people knew their place if there was such a thing as uh, knowing your place. Um, I just think there's a better visceral understanding of, uh, Mm -hmm. of white supremacy. Uh, It it has to be because I don't think whites even want to engage that conversation. Um, I think Mm. if you bring, I think if you bring that topic up in most, um, social situations, um, mm-hmm. whites simply denounce it, um, without mm-hmm. really talking about it, um, oh. w- without exploring it, much less understanding uh-huh. it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what do you think the reason why they don't explore it is lack of education? Um, I think we could do a lot more in our schools to um, help students through engagement, to understand the concept. Mm-hmm. If you have kids in classrooms mm-hmm. and you had an opportunity by a teacher to, who understood 
white supremacy uh-huh. to actually discuss it. Uh-huh. Um, you'd have mm-hmm. a you'd have a captive audience. You'd have a mm-hmm. an opportunity. But I think uh, I think mm-hmm. outside that environment, mm-hmm. um, people mm-hmm. whites for the most part I don't think want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's been my experience socially, in social settings. I don't recall whenever the topic would come up that whites want to um, explore it. Topic seems to change and just morph into something else fairly quickly. Hmm. Hmm. It just sounds to me as if they don't want to talk about it. They know about it, but they don't want to talk about it. That's what it makes me think all these Caucasians that, I don't know you're not saying everyone in the world, but the majority of the Caucasians, when it comes up, it's hey. So it's not even talked about. It's like a... Well, you're suggesting perhaps that they're simply very uncomfortable with the topic, and I think that's true. Maybe beneath the surface there's this discomfort created by a certain level of understanding that makes them very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. as I say, there's a resistance. I I think there's a general resistance to to want to discuss it for any number of reasons. But right. I, th- I think you, okay. I think you're quite correct, though. I think that's part of it. Okay. Well, well thank you. Thank you for answering my um, questions. And um, well, I'm trying to answer. I'll meet my. Oh, well, I mean, as much information as you're going to give. Yeah. Of course. So I appreciate. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate the response, and I'll mute my line. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Much, you're ob- much obliged. Bay Area Mom. Uh, before we let you enjoy the rest of your Tuesday uh, evening, we generally try to ask when we have white guests on the program, especially if they've been on the planet for you know a little while to have some experience. Uh, racist jokes, I found that that can be uh, a real informative means of studying white supremacy as we were just talking about. Sometimes white people are not very forthcoming when presenting about racism. That is not the case with racist jokes. Sometimes they can be extremely honest when kidding around about racism. Uh, in your time on the planet, uh, Professor Van Dusen, have you heard uh, any racist jokes? Uh, any at all? If, if you can remember uh, at least one, could you share with us? I, I have no... <laughs> I've, I've heard them all the time. But can I give you one? No. I don't remember a specific racist joke, uh, but yeah, and I, I guess what's troubling is the assumption when I hear them that I would appreciate them. Um, I just kind of, it, it's just, uh, they're pretty obvious. You know, I, no, I don't, I can't recall a specific racist joke, but I've heard, I've heard any number of them. Over the over the years, who wouldn't have heard them? Hmm. Non-white people usually often 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 um, sexually oriented. Hmm. How interesting! How interesting! That is a long-running pattern uh, that we've had on the program. We've had many many individuals classified as white. Sometimes uh, they've been older than yourself, uh, Professor Van Dusen, uh, where and grew up where they said grew up around people who were super racist, told racist jokes all the time. We literally have had people where they said, Hey, 
I've heard over a thousand of them, like literally, like all the time, every day, blah, 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 blah. But they couldn't remember one to share with us. And again, I just pointed out like, wow, once you understand racism, white supremacy, you can get like he was just saying, wow, it seems like there's a pattern of sexual commentary going on here and, and violence targeting black people specifically and lots that can be gleaned. Just deconstruct what's being said in these funnies. Very informative. Uh, I guess the last one I said, there are many uh, parallels between what happened in Buffalo and the subject matter in your book, at least for the 1942 riot. I know one thing that stood out for me, they said, nearly all of the victims Saturday's carnage uh, 11 out of 13 reportedly were black reading your book nearly all of the folks who were arrested for the 1942 riot were black I think he did tell us before about where did they recruit police officers from oh that might help explain why you would have figures like that, even though you hear this consistently with these type of events. Anywho, uh, I think I got most of my questions. Did everything. Did listeners, we didn't miss anybody? Anybody that dialed in, got all their questions? Great. So we got everybody taken care of. Again, now this was a botch. This was not the book we were supposed to talk about, but you know, hey, make do and then the Buffalo situation kind of messed everything up all the way around. But we compensated and discussed Detroit's Sojourner Truth Housing Riot of nineteen forty two. Raping Negras even making a appearance there. Lots of constructive info, even I think some overtones of what took place on Saturday uh, with Professor Gerald Van Dusen. Much obliged for hanging out with us uh, this evening. We've been embiggened by your presence, sir. Uh, we will. I have to get the other book um, messed up. I have to go get that one to see if I can read a little bit about Birdwall and see if I'll get some better information about housing or, or continue the story. But much obliged for being flexible and hanging out with us this well, year, Tuesday. I, I want to thank you very much, Gus, because this has been um, very important, very interesting to me, um, your, your own commentary. I think it's been very insightful. Um, and um, I've got a lot to learn as well. That's for sure. Uh, so I appreciate very much you giving me the opportunity to have this discussion. Thank you kindly uh, for hanging out with us, sir. Uh, do some more reading folks in the Michigan area. You should give this one a flip through, especially if you have any folks who don't know Birdwood Wall. What is that? What is that? Yes, you should maybe check it out. Go to the library, do some reading. Much obliged for hanging out with us this evening. Uh, Professor Gerald Van Dusen uh, joining us live in Michigan. If I get up there, I'll check out the beach one day. Uh, take care. Thank we you, will guys. speak soon. Bye-bye. Evening, sir. Context of white supremacy. Cannot wait. Even pause. There were many things that were important about that, but cannot forget Joseph G. Christopher. Joseph G. Christopher. Mr. Van Dusen. Uh, now, he's not a history professor. He said, hey, I'm an English professor. Back up. <laughs> I'm not a historian. But he didn't know about Joseph G. Christopher either. 
he's in his 70s. He lived through all of this. Like, there's no way he couldn't have at least seen an article. Like a lot of folks, we have people who say that they were in, live in the New York area and they didn't know about Joseph G. Christopher either. The 22 caliber killer. That was one of his nicknames. I think he's got it too, but <sighs> book club Thursday, that right there, at least in my opinion, that is enormous. The fact that there is no historical context for any of this. Like I said, 1980, that's not like ancient history. I mean, my goodness, your parents, if anybody out there, your mom and dad should have been alive during that. They should remember, or at least, you know, remember their parents and family members talking about all this, especially if they're in the New York area. That right there should tell you like, wow, black people, victims of racism. We are really, we are not the experts on this at all. We don't have any sort of historical context at all to, as Dr. Welsing said, connect the dots as to why these things happen. Anywho, we'll take a quick commercial break. Be right back. See if folks have anything. Or I'll give a few thoughts, get other people's thoughts on what they heard. Uh, and then uh, whew, book club. I'm so excited. Book club on Thursday. Absolute madness. Get the, It should be easy to find. I think it was a bestseller, at least written by a bestseller. Anywho. We'll take a quick break and be right back. Context of white supremacy. The late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage, or monkeys, or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so... Give him some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see, that that's what they see, that that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way and indirectly see ourselves that way.
context of white supremacy. So should be here on Thursday, white people permitting. Uh, we'll have our book club, Catherine Pellinero. Uh, she is a white woman. She is the author of Absolute Madness, uh, the Joseph G. Christopher serial killings in the New York State area uh, for that 1980s, early 1980s. That'll be this Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. First session. Cannot wait. Uh, so glad that I have uh, at least some memory of this incident to be able to go back and dig details. Because I don't, I don't think I ever did like a serious investigation of this. Like to go and read a lot of uh, reports or you know anything um, to go find out about what happened with all this. So I'll be looking forward to going and doing some research, reading the book, and uh, especially being able to draw connections with what's happening uh, right now. But that'll be Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Absolute madness should be easy to find. You can even go to the library if you want to check it out or what have you. Uh, Super easy Thursday. Program for uh, today, I can only say anytime you're talking to someone classified as white and you're getting a lot of the white uh, ignorance they're not informed uh, we just need to have contact with black people all of that is that this nonsense to the highest I think they even interviewed uh, some black people in Buffalo who said they went to school with Peyton Gendron I might be an error but I'm pretty sure I could pull that up you gave me five minutes like super quick they went and talked to his classmate did the same thing with Dylan Roof he had uh, black fit. oh my god remember that from 2015 they had some of his friends come out and say oh my gosh Dylan Roof was great what are you talking about he wasn't racist he never said any crazy racist things what are you talking about he was a cool old dude remember that more informed about racism and that one as well like it was many many things uh, that Professor uh, Gerald Van Dusen shared throughout the program, not just and in fact, I can give to his response to my definition of white supremacy. Now, when our caller mommy in Michigan, when she dialed in when she said, I didn't get to hear the very first part of the program, I didn't hear the the whole exchange about the definition. Did you agree? And he said, well, oh, I didn't I didn't get to study it. You know, this is my first time hearing it. And, oh, you know, I need to read it again and really think about it. She said, well, what's your definition of racism? That got even worse. He said, oh, that's, uh, oh, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. Group in power. And, oh, that's man. That's a he wrote a whole book about a race riot and you don't have a definition for racism come on man you're a professor at a community co- I mean even at a community college come on man and particularly when you do the rewind when I asked my definition he didn't say oh yeah of course he said ooh you know, I I would want to disagree. I, I, I would want to, you know, say no. But I mean, after all of the, the years of research and evidence, I mean, you know, how can you disagree with that? <laughs> it was like he wanted to be like, oh, nah, that's great. I don't, I don't want to co-sign on that. But he, he, 
And that happened a few times where he said he was uh, writing about the black people and they were trying to move out, get better housing, get better resources, and they ran into hate. Barriers, he said. Not identifying the problem is individuals classified as white. And I even want to point out as well, we talked about that flyer where it's got at the bottom raping negros our white girls have to be safe like man that right there communicates so much about what it means to be white and you can't be ignorant all of that nonsense and you know we just get them a few books you know get them a good library card and get them a good syllabus and you know take care of all this come on man come on man Bay Area mom called and she said hey man seems like you got a lot of these folks they don't want it. You come to, hey, man, we got some Tallahassee coats. Isabel Wilkerson. Hate you, give. Get out of here. Like, wait. Aren't you, you, Buffalo is a tragedy, right? Charleston, you know? Christ Church, right? News all over the world. Aren't we tired of all this, right? that right there would seem to suggest maybe we're not ignorant maybe what that old coon said in his definition dedicated to white supremacy racism and I mean real talk Peyton Gendron, Dylan Roof individuals classified as white male female children cannot be ignorant about racism in fact my last one when I read that passage the so-called middle-class black people in Michigan, maybe our black mommy lives there, Conant Gardens. Uh, They live there and they didn't want the housing project, the Sojourner Truth housing project. Initially, they didn't want it there either. And so they were going to, we're going to have a, an interracial coalition. And then they found out like, Oh, it's going to be temporary. It's going to be permanent. They're going to put something like, Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. 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 No problem. No problem. problem." And then like, Oh, wait a minute. The folks that we were going to pair with, they just, they're just racist like oh man we we messed up I thought they were cool and we were just you know homeowners and we all just want a great neighborhood and be safe and that's not what this is at all he wrote he said that they felt humiliated guilty that happens all the time with individuals classified as not white Gus included we don't understand racism we don't understand what it means to be white that's hey Dylan Roof went in there and sat with those parishioners I forgot how long it was but it was I mean it wasn't like he just went and started shooting he went down and sat for a minute was kicking it during the Bible study they said uh, Peyton Gendron he was at the store the day before I think at least the two days before it might have been. They said he was kicking it, talking to customers and what separation. He was kicking it, talking to customers, bumming quarters and what have you, pretending to be some homeless white person. That's what they said. Who is more informed about what it means to be white? I don't talk to non-white strangers. I mean, keep it a buck. (laughs) If I didn't know retired firefighter, like if I just saw him and I didn't, you know, whatever, whatever. Brother Gus, hey, (laughs) I don't talk to strangers, much less someone that I suspect could be a race soldier. 
you just randomly out kicking it in. Hey, brother, how you doing? Crazy happenings, huh? This Rona, you've been vaccinated? Come, are you serious? What does it mean to be white? Who is more informed about racism, white supremacy, what it means, how it works, and I'm so glad we got yet another one that keeps from South Carolina, Michigan, all these different areas. Religion of white supremacy motivating their behavior. Galvanizing. That was the word he used. The galvanizing force. Let's see. Uh, Folks who dialed in, if y'all have commentary to share, if anybody here, if you were informed about Joseph G. Christopher prior to his name being mentioned, his crimes I should say, uh, being mentioned on the cows, let us know because I haven't talked to anybody yet. I think that's important and you can, you know, brag like, hey, I was informed and need your content. I know what's going on. Uh, folks who dialed in, if you have thoughts on what you heard from Professor Van Dusen, proceed. Nabby Hurt. Uh, our Bay Area mom, yes, ma'am. Oh, uh, this is the mom in Michigan. Oops, my fault, my fault. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, so I was just um just wanted to say that um after listening to the, the guest, um, I think there was a caller who asked what was his purpose of writing uh his book and things like that. Um, and I just, I really appreciate the, the program for, you know, um, getting white authors or guests. Uh, I think that they are eager to probably just come on and, and talk about, you know, their experience. And it's just like a project for them to um, do these books and things like that. But they're so, they get uncomfortable with the, the type of questions that we ask. Um, so, um, you know, like you said, him not having a uh, definition for racism, but his book is based, you know, off of racism and housing. It's just it's bizarre to me that that is, um, you know, he didn't have a definition. Um, I, I'm in Detroit, and I, I, I did not know specifically that the area uh, was called Conant Gardens, but that area today is it's really bad it's you know the houses are, are either burnt down there's a lot of uh, empty lots it's a bad area um based off of you know just how detroit is changing right now so it's just, it was interesting to get that information from him but uh you know i i just find it interesting that he didn't have a definition for racism but he's writing um about racism and again you know they they would they're comfortable coming on shows like this to, you know, to, to to say buckets and buckets of words and share their quote unquote knowledge, I guess. But they, um, it's, 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 it's bizarre that they, they're picking a subject about racism, but really don't have a definition. So um, I just appreciate all the callers for pressing and pressing and pressing the guests um, personally um, so we can kind of get a, a better understanding of the individual uh, who is writing these books and educating their people on how to practice racism. That's just what I get out of it. Thanks for taking my call. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. Shout to justice. Had to get that in at least one time. Yeah, if anything, I think that just further 
illustrates how confused non-white people are because I think we've we've had numbers of white guests over the years where I think that's they are accustomed to being able to go and talk whether it's going to interview black people like he talked about and maybe they start out suspicion suspicious uh, but he can win them over pretty easily uh, whatever meager suspicions they may have uh, or whether it's going to be interviewed themselves to talk about these projects after they're complete uh, where they can just go and regale the niggers or non-white people in general with whatever stories they have. They can say whatever they want. Maybe they answer the question. Maybe they don't. And just, wow, this fella is great. This is a good white man. And if we just had 20 more of you and Jane Elliott and Tim Wise, this problem would be solved. Like I just, it must not happen at all, I guess, uh, for them to actually go and have a non-white person ask them serious questions, non-white people, period, ask them serious questions. Uh, you didn't answer my question. I think you're practicing racism. Like what you're saying doesn't make any sense. That sort of thing. It must be a very rare thing uh, where it's just lots where you say, well, they can write these books and inform other white people how to practice racism and confound victims all the while. Lots of that. Any other uh, folks who dialed in or just uh, victim in New Jersey uh, didn't get a question at all. Should be with us as well. Hey, Gus, um, I'm just getting in late. Um, I didn't really listen to uh, the guests, but um, I wanted to say I'm from the New Jersey area, and uh, the situation that you brought to our attention, the book that you're about to read Thursday, if you would have quizzed me and, you know, the prize was a million dollars, then I would have just been asked out of a million dollars. I knew nothing about uh, those killings um, in the Buffalo area. And um, with these guests, you know, that's why, you know, this, this, um, you know, this, this isn't listening in and calling in isn't entertainment for me. Uh, I, I don't call or talk a lot just to be heard, you know, because I mean, we, you know, I mean, black males, especially I'm in my forties. I mean, so many black males are dying in their 40s and 50s. So, you know, maybe something that I say, something that a retired firefighter will say, something that Gus will say, something that um, one of these white guests will say will um, spark the brain computer of somebody that may come across this show. And they might be the the brain that solves this problem uh, that is racism. And um, I must say, before I even started to listen to this show, you know, the way uh, Gus and the guests kind of, uh, you know, asked these questions, you know, when I was, you know, more confused, I'm still confused, I'm still learning, I will probably be taken aback. And I've said this before, I will probably, listen, you know, how, you know, who are you Negroes to badger these good white people who took their time to come talk to you? And this is how you treat them. You know, if I was if I was more, you know, if this was years ago, and, and and let's just say if I was more confused, I would I would probably look at this show that way. But now that I'm learning, I don't. And everything that we uh, listen, to, every guest and every experience that we have talking to these guests, and when you go into um, the outside world, outside of the programming, and you see the same pattern. You know, even with Buffalo, you know, white people take both, either take both sides of the argument or they make comparisons that 
are not comparable. <laughs> you know, now the Buffalo shooting happened. Now white people are talking about, what about Waukesha? Uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, or what have you. You know, and then when you, and, 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 and their deception and their lies is so just kind of like, who cares that we're lying? I'm, I'm white and I say so. You can Google. You can just use Google. You don't even have to do any kind of like real studying to find out that these people are lying, <laughs> you know? So it, it's, it's, it's just trippy, but I can't wait to listen to the playback and, and hear uh, what this uh, white professor had to say. I quote. Much obliged to victim in New Jersey. Lots of people right there in the tri-state area uh, for New York said that they hadn't heard about this. We're not informed about uh, Joseph G. Christopher. Again, his should be mentioned every day. That's how I think. Like, hey, they said thousands of people were out protesting in Buffalo. Racism. Racism. He's killing, killing black males specifically. Don't let us get halfway in this book and let me think like, dang, is that part of the reason that nobody remembers this? Because he was exclusively targeting black males, almost all of the victims. And then the few that were not, they were non-white males. I know that can't be part of the reason that nobody remembers this at all. Black male privilege. Mm. carving out black males hearts at that I mean dang it's not like he just killed a coon or what have you I mean hey that's whatever but I mean really in the 80s and nobody alrighty any other folks commentary that they want to make sure they get in uh yes uh uh white people just a thought white people don't have to have a meaning for the word racism because they know they know that they understand that consciously or unconsciously that they're not negatively impacted by it. Uh, my suggestion would be for non-white people to have a definition uh, as concise as them knowing their date of birth uh, I, I'm, I understand it far as the questions that I asked him. I understand that, that there is no book that white people, uh, need and in most cases don't even want to, uh, study on racism and white people don't need to study on racism at all. Uh, but, uh, I, I did it to challenge the, uh, the guests. Uh, because uh, I was going to see if he can come up with uh, such uh, material uh, that is proven that it has an effect on a white person like uh, a book on poisons. You know, that's something that's instructive. You can point directly to that. Uh, there was a, was a white male down here in South Florida by the name of Bill Hast that was an expert on snakes. Uh, and, uh, he could have wrote, wrote a book on snakes and that'd be something that you actually can point to and say, well, okay, that snake, you know, does this, 
because that of his colors and the way it's looked, the shape of his head, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, uh, no, there's no book that uh, white people respond to on racism, you know, at all. And uh, but uh, he is also uh, proof of how white people are skilled, even the nice, refined white people like himself, uh, how they would uh, dodge questions. Uh, as someone says, a bucket's a bucket of words and not really coming up with a concise answer. Uh, and uh, it's good exercise. It's good mental exercise for non-white people to have such people on the program. And that's all I would say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Hopefully all of us getting better questioning white people and uh, picking our questions. Uh, anybody else have questions, observations? We got everybody. Anybody else? Or nobody else had observations, questions, thoughts? Josh, may I say something? That is Bay Area Mom. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Sorry about that. I was on the other line. Um, I um, I thought it was interesting how he, they all, a lot of the uh, callers, they always have a defense for how come they're so naive on racism and no one's willing to give up anything. Even with him, he said, it's just too bad because they they need to make books and we don't have any. And if they don't teach them at school, then I'll be messed up for y'all forever. So it's just like, oh, well, and, and, and it's, it's, it's just interesting that they don't know anything they have all the books, all their books. You said there's a lynching section in the library. Who's right? We're not writing those books. They've got all the information in education. They, they're totally focused on maintaining this system and making it more strong, stern, sturdy, structured. They're doing it right now. So I don't know. It just... It's just there are, uh, what did you say, dedicated to maintaining this system, consciously or unconsciously. And that's all I'll say. Thank you. Yep, 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 yep. We have heard a variety of lame rationales for alleged white ignorance about white supremacy, racism. And as you said, who's writing all of these books? I mentioned quite a Charles Hyde's book, uh, Arsenal of Democracy, where he talks about all these hate strikes and everything else, white women, white men, not going to let these nigga women use our bathroom and all the rest of that. It's written by a white man. Who's he writing that book for? It certainly wasn't for Gus T. He didn't send me an autographed copy of his book. But they're ignorant, poorly. And but they even said that about Strom Thurmond, I believe that he was like, come on, come on, come on. 
dedicated, not using correct words. And again, that must be really important to suggest that black people are like PhD experts on racism while Dylan Roof and Peyton Jenrin, you know, they just, they just need a few books. If we could just get them a remedial Tim Wise class or three, they would straighten up and fly right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, we talked about repeatedly, you got white children at the lynchings, man. You're not ignorant about anything. If you've been hanging out at lynching since the time you could walk or 10, he said that the white women had the strollers out using them to block so that the black people couldn't move into the housing, uh, the Sojourner Truth housing, housing project. You're not ignorant. If you've been hanging out and doing all this from the time that you could walk, could breathe before you could walk on your own and what have you, you're still, you know, getting formula. When <laughs> They're talking about the for instant baby formula shortages and what have you. Uh, did we nap all the folks who had commentary that they wanted to make sure they get in any other observations, comments to get in? Okay, guys, can I say one more thing? Bay Area mom. Okay. Do you see how now it's on the schools? So the schools are supposed to teach the uh, the white children about racism. You can't even, even if you give the guy, what did he do, detention out here in Sacramento? He, instead of uh, detention, whooping them, beating them, making them stand in the corner, he took them on um, for a game of basketball. That that wasn't okay. So how it just it's just they just make up stuff. They just make up stuff because it's so make believe. We're not gonna do it anyway, so we could just make up fairy tales and have you wish on a star waiting on it to happen. And no more talking. I'll mean my line. Unfortunately, very accurate uh all of the crt and book bannings and all the rest we talked about that case was young black educator uh who had a black student he just went out to play street ball unfortunately and he almost got fired for that uh much less that he wasn't even talking about hey let's go get all of the white pupils and teach the hate you give or or whatever else he didn't he didn't even name that tacky book. I don't know if that's one or not, but whatever book he thinks they should have resources or uh, he said engagement. If we need to take a field trip and go hang out with the black people or what have you. Okay. Again, Strom Thurmond. I haven't seen anything about it's a problem us hanging out together. I haven't seen where that solves any problems. Incidentally, our mom in Michigan, she said the black metal class area so-called Conant Gardens now is all dilapidated and run down hmm now who is to blame for that because that's another one let's see 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 the Negros and all that mm-hmm. individuals classified as white now and even with Detroit all that taxation there's so much in terms of them overtaxing black residents and who knows how long that went on and again that's not just Detroit Andrew Carl talked about that as widespread and that's one of those that is very difficult to figure out because sometimes you get access to the tax information sometimes you don't and again who's more informed anywho 
it's not just that. Detroit is also one of those where they went in and, oh, I forgot to mention Kwame Kilpatrick. I was doing all that. I was going to say silly, but it's not silly with uh, Renisha McBride and Joe Lewis, but I totally forgot Kwame Kilpatrick. I was going to ask him, do you remember when they did the, uh, what do you call it? The plane flew over and it said, don't drop the soap. Oh, he said it was all sexualized. I meant to ask him before he departed. Do you remember that former mayor Kwame Kilpatrick when they some person hired literally a plane to fly overhead the day that he was sentenced and taken off to greater confinement in Texas? I think he's been released now, but don't drop the soap. That is not ignorance about white supremacy, racism, but there's a long history of white people in Detroit, Michigan in general that I mean even Flint you won't think about with the water but doing things to rob, loot and pillage the black people in that area and then said, oh man the city's mismanagement and we don't have any money and oh it's all dilapidated racist white supremacists in a city with that at one point had a huge population of black people great migration and all of that Lots of white supremacy, racism, not just in housing, all areas, housing, education, everything. And then they can just sit back and point at the black people. And that's not to mention all of the deliberate white disinvestment uh, in Detroit, them moving out to the suburbs. I think Detroit is one of those where you have a lot of white people. They live outside of Detroit, so they're not paying property taxes to Detroit. They're like goofiness, like uh, Auburn Hills and that sort of thing. Uh, and then there's no money in the coffers for Detroit. We don't have, all deliberate. And they can sit around and blame Kwame Kilpatrick. But I totally I had that in my notes to say that. Don't drop this. Up. I don't know if people uh, remember that. Maybe people in the Michigan area remember that one. But I think we even played a report on that. I think that's like 2013, maybe a little bit before when he got uh, sentenced because it was a number of black uh, elected officials who got in trouble were sentenced I think around that time uh, Ray Nagin in New Orleans was around the same time if my memory is bad but yes mocking Kwame Kilpatrick eh. anywho uh, everybody, we got everybody everybody good for the day set me up for a comeback Kwame Kilpatrick released from greater confinement they sent him all the way to Texas too like he got convicted in Michigan and they had him in greater confinement in like Texas uh, for all those years like uh, <sighs> Michigan lots to uh, lots to say again if you're in the Michigan area the militia we should even do that because like that I think that is I think he confirmed like they uh, the white militia members they had a connection to Timothy McVeigh the Oklahoma City uh, bombing Turner Diaries and all of that. Lots of local history. Keep saying that every day. Look, shouldn't live in the state of New York and not know who Joseph G. Christopher is. We will do our part to help correct that on Thursday. I'm so excited. Like I so enjoy. Or, yeah, I enjoyed it. Not like Dear Senator was like my favorite book, and I can't wait to read it again. But I learned a lot. Uh, confusion. Another example. Now, man, did S.E. Mae Washington Williams, did she sound like she is more informed about racism than a white person? Mm. Anyway, I was super excited, enjoyed it, learned so much and, you know, didn't really know what to think about the next book. But now I am extra eager to begin 
Absolute Madness. Catherine Pellinero, that is how you say her name, might be able to hook you up with a book, perhaps. Uh, we shall have to see. Sometimes folks get upset about that, and I'm already super hated, so I try to minimize the uh, hatred directed at Gus T. But Absolute Madness. Joseph G. Christopher, he was deliberately targeting black males. As I said, this is in the paper, the New York Times. Like, you don't have to go anywhere crazy. This is regular newspapers. He was accused. They didn't even take the case to trial with the black cab drivers who were found. Whoa, someone killed them and cut their heart out. They never even had a trial for those cases. In Buffalo. Apparently, still not mentioned. It's been, what, that was Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, three days. As I, if I was running CNN, New York Times, even the Buffalo News, man, they could just pull out their archives. Like, man, we covered all of this. We were here 40 years ago. Look at what we reported. And now we're back in the same spot. What a disgrace. Pro- again, progress. They have a black uh, newspaper in Buffalo. I called them to see if they could get archives because they have they have front page pictures in the black press from the early 1980s with wanted pictures of a white suspect <laughs> talking about. I mean, I'm, it's, just, it's not funny, but I mean, they do 40 years ago. They do right in Buffalo. I didn't even know they had a black newspaper uh, in Buffalo. I think it's called the Challenger or what have you. It's in the uh, if you look at the advertisement for the uh, book club coming up this Thursday uh, you'll see the name of the black newspaper in Buffalo right at the top uh, of the image uh, or what have you with the image of the suspect I'll see if I can give it to you before we get ready to sign off right here but yeah if you uh, get a chance look online see some of the content what they have to say about all this always love local news sources Uh, the Buffalo Challenger that's what it is the Buffalo Challenger Apparently they're still in operation. They have a website and what have you, but I mean, all of their, I would just be going through the archives. Like, look at this, look at this, look at this. That's what we'll be doing on Thursday. I cannot wait, cannot wait to get started. 8 PM Eastern, 5 PM Pacific written by a white woman. Hopefully we can even get her as a guest on the program. That'd be great. Double dip. Anywho, Uh, Much obliged for everyone's participation. Hope it was worthy of your Tuesday evening. White guests only. Uh, Sobriety would be best, especially with everything happening right now. You want to be sober and alert so you can be mindful of things that are happening. Alert of your surroundings at all times. Uh, In addition to being sober, if you're out and about, especially if you're in a vehicle, uh, hey, psh. You are not in confrontations with strangers. You have no idea. They said uh, my man Peyton Ginger and he was at the supermarket, as I said, talking to folks. You have no idea. He could have been armed and ready to roll right then. Be alert. Be thinking unless you came out ready to die right now. Engage in counterviolence right now exit you have no idea this person might have all kinds of tactical armor gear might have an entourage you're by yourself if you are not prepared for all of that exit quickly call enforcement officials get a good description so that you can give as much detail as possible if you're in a vehicle you're sober 
buckled up and not on your mobile phone. We need all of our attention and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. No name calling. No gossiping. No reckless production of non-white offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all. For tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.